This panel is Living and Working in the Borderlands, which follows very nicely from Sonia Alvarez's keynote that maybe some of you just came from. Um, my name is Jennifer Brody de Hernandez, and I teach gender studies and media studies and um, comparative literature at Bard College at Simons Rock. And um, our panelists today are Margaret Randall, Ruth Irope Sanabria, and Michelle Gonzalez. So I will introduce um, them individually, and I just thought I would give a little bit of an overview to kind of set the framework for the panel, the, um, some of the references that we may be drawing on today. So um, the term Borderlands is Gloria Anzaldúa's, of course. She also coined the term New Mestiza, by which she meant, quote, a liminal subject who lives in the borderlands between cultures, races, languages, and genders. In this state of in-betweenness, Anzaldúa said, the mestiza can mediate, translate, negotiate, and navigate these different locations. So you hear echoes of what Sonia Alvarez was talking about right there. And this was, you know, Gloria Anzaldúa dates back to the 80s. So in a conference that's retrospective, looking back over 40 years, I think it's really appropriate to look back at Anzaldúa and what she was telling us back in the 80s. So I think that all of us on this panel would identify ourselves as mestizas in the sense of people who have spent our lives straddling the borders between different cultures, different worldviews, and different identities. Not only that, but I would say that all of us are nepantleras, and Zaldúa's term for those who not only live in the borderlands, a space she also called nepantla, but actively strive to translate between the two sides of any particular border, to be the bridge, as Anzaldúa put it to create the meeting ground where productive negotiations can take place and new ways of being can emerge. By Nepantla, Anzaldúa meant, quote, the place where different perspectives come into conflict and where you question basic ideas, tenets, identities um, inherited from your family, your education, and your different cultures. Inhabiting this space is not easy or comfortable, as I think you're going to be hearing from our panelists today. But it's also a very exciting place to be because, as Anzaldúa put it, Nepantla is a zone of possibility, a liminal state of transformation. And transformation is what feminist scholars and activists have been working towards for the past 40 years and more, and what we still need to be working on today. So already in the 1990s, Gloria Anzaldúa was talking about the need for a planetary consciousness to emerge, for us to embark on what she called a new tribalism based on affinity rather than identity, on connections of interest rather than connections of blood. As we move into the 21st century and the realities of global climate change begin to stare us in the face, it's ever more essential that we recognize the importance of working together across the old-fashioned boundaries of nation, race, class, and gender. And Zaldúa believed that feminists and queer folk would lead the way on this, precisely because of our border location that we would be the ones to lead the way to what she called El Mundo Zurdo, a space of unity and difference where all people, and indeed all life forms on the planet, would be given a new respect. I've, also, I've often asked myself, is it true that women, queer folk, and other oppressed people have some kind of special connection to what Gloria Anzaldúa called conocimiento? Anzaldúa defined conocimiento as, quote, a form of spiritual inquiry reached via creative acts, writing, art-making, dancing, healing, teaching, meditation, and spiritual activism. 
Through creative engagement, she said, you embed your experiences in a larger frame of reference, connecting your personal struggles with those of other beings on the planet and with the struggles of Earth itself. I don't think conocimiento is necessarily the exclusive province of the marginalized and oppressed, but I do think that oppression is a crucible that forces us to confront rather ugly truths that those in the mainstream halls of power may simply overlook or choose not to see. I see it as my business, as a feminist activist scholar working within the academy, to promote, extend, and strengthen the work of Nepantleras like Anzaldúa and like our panelists today. As writers, we must use our words as spotlights shining into dark corners of the world where things happen that many people in the mainstream would otherwise have the privilege not to know or not to see. In my own career, I focus much of my work in comparative literature in the genres of oral history, testimonial, and personal narrative in both poetry and prose because I believe that first-person accounts of suffering have the potential to awaken empathy in the hearts of the privileged, the ones who might be able to make the social and political changes needed to alleviate this suffering. I think feminists have learned in these past 40 years that separatism is not the answer. We cannot accomplish our goals unless we bring the entire society along with us. Women must work with men, the poor must work with the wealthy, the subordinates of any binary opposition must work with the dominance in order to make lasting change. To make these connections, we have a great need for Nepantleras who are willing to work in the borderlands, who can retell the old stories and invent new stories that will touch the hearts of the privileged and awaken them to the urgency of the contemporary struggle for social and environmental justice. Our three panelists, each from a different generation and a different borderland location, are doing precisely this kind of work. And that's what they'll be sharing with us today. So I'm going to introduce our first panelist. Um, I, I made the decision to begin with Margaret Randall, who is in some ways our most distinguished guest today, um, the one with the longest history, going way past 40 years of feminist activism and scholarship, um, and to sort of move generationally, ending with Michelle Gonzalez, who's our youngest panelist, who um, in some ways you know, the emerging, the emerging feminist. So our first panelist, Margaret Randall, has spent a lifetime living and working in borderland spaces, using poetry, photography, oral history, and narrative to dominate, document the oppression she witnessed there and also the incredible resilience and strength that she found. Margaret's many decades of working for social justice began with her involvement in the Mexican student movement in 1968. She lived and worked in Cuba, during the early years of the revolution there, and then moved to Sandinista, Nicaragua in the 1980s. Some of her most influential books were written while in Cuba and Nicaragua, including the oral histories Cuban Women Now, Sandino's Daughters, and Sandino's Daughters Revisited. These texts amplified the voices of Cuban and Nicaraguan revolutionary women, bringing them to English-speaking audiences hungry for their inspirational stories. However, speaking truth to power has its price. And when Margaret returned to her hometown of Albuquerque, New Mexico in 1984, she was ordered deported under a provision of the McCarran-Walter Immigration and Nationality Act. The government alleged that some of her writing was, quote, against the good order and happiness of the United States. <laughs> With the help of many scholars and activists, she won her case in 1989 and now lives and writes in Albuquerque with her partner, Barbara Byers. Margaret is the author of more than 80 books of poetry, oral history, photography, essay, and memoir. She's going to share with us today a selection of her poems 
and discuss her work on the borderlands over the past 50 years. Please welcome Margaret Randall. Thank you, Jenny, and thank you all for being here. Thank you, Barnard, for putting on this wonderful conference, which uh, I just, uh, tears came to my eyes this morning uh, during the introduction to the main speaker uh, at the mention of Jane Gould, who was a dear friend, and um, I think of her whenever I think of Barnard and and the center. Yes, I think this is the first time that um, I'm sort of on this end of this. I guess when you get to be 75, you can wear flat shoes, forget things, and be first on this kind of a program. I'm going to share some poems with you that um, I thought a little bit about um, the the topic of the panel and um, the idea of borderlands. And of course, for me, and I think probably for many of you, borderlands are not only physical spaces along the borders between nations, which of course shift all the time and in many cases are very arbitrary, Um, But we all have borders within us, uh, borders uh, of race, borders of uh, class, aspirations, gender, sexuality, um, and our borders are not necessarily static. Um, They move as we grow, they change as we grow, but they also change with the times so that new times uh, define and demand new borders. I'm going to read a few poems with that in mind. This first one, which very much is um, related to the border near which I live, the border between Mexico and the United States, is called Unpleasant Litter. Gallon bottle of water, buena suerte compañero, in black magic marker, left along strategic route, This one may save a life or provide the animo needed to keep going. To keep on keeping on through desert burn, loneliness looming on every side, met by creosote and sage, rises and dips of sand through this topography. The man arrested for leaving water is charged with a misdemeanor, Littering, says the law. Hope, insists the offender, who mentions the last time he made his rounds, he found the body of a 14-year-old girl from El Salvador. Surely our land should be free of such unpleasant litter. The struggle there, as many of you may know, especially in Arizona, the next state over from mine, um, has become uh, ferocious in the last few years with um, anti-immigrant laws and so forth. And of course, with all the the rebellion on on our part against those, those laws. So this one is called Canary in the Mine One. Chained to a school board in Tucson, Arizona, students protest the erasure of in lock ek. You are my other me. Democracy beats them bloody. 
devious as Helen at Troy in Western Civ, as Last Supper pop-ups, memory ancient as maze, and dangerous as who we know we are. After Nogales, Tucson, Chicago, and North, law becomes hate's trail of crumbs. The walking dead climb aboard an underground train of hope. Dark ghosts breach borders, rigged by men on monumental steeds who keep the peace in the history we're taught. Beyond the front line border wall, invisible replicas fall like dominoes across the next ridge and the next. On the desert, all the borders die. Every brown child who fears questions, papers, and the pale green migra van. Every child of every hue taught nothing but how to score on the master's test marks time because thinking is dangerous and living by the rules foolproof prelude to a future where none can hear the song. When the floodwaters recede and fires turn to ash, when they come to see what's left, they will find a million dead canaries singing in perfect harmony. This one is called When the Last Gulls Head for Home. Sea perfect as glass or raging wild masks its hidden places. Canyon floors we cannot reach, lives and treasure lost to a history scattered in stories we know and don't. Tectonic plates inch or heave their restless shoulders, volcanoes retch at depth, creating underwater Everests and whirlpools more mysterious than the Bermuda Triangle. Iron links of an anchor chain once coiled in pride, corrode beneath the dark of centuries. Light gone out on regal crystal leaves human sockets empty. Humpbacks launch their hopeful cries. Schools of dolphin leap beside the furring march of ships. And dazzling blues and yellows dart through lacy forests of coral in foreclosure. We cannot forget those mercury-poisoned waters, dead fish floating past demented sight, atolls that were nations, insignificant when measured in foreign debt, and that one peculiar cloud rising above the waves or cursing their underside Humanity's sad calling card left again and then again, too late to lean out like a figurehead at Titanic's prow, or fill my lungs with brine when the last gulls head for shore. Too late to imagine this is a game that will be lost. I am still aboard our battered ship, 
tossed lee and starboard, clinging to one demon-lashed rail, gaining a sure footing, no longer my concern. I wield my poor language like a broken sextant, mesmerized by the heave and pull of time upon my history. I weep for the stories lost and a future that might have been untethering at my waist. This next poem, um, I recently saw a film that I recommend to all of you. It's Patricio Guzman's new film called um, Nostalgia por la Luz. Uh, he's a Chilean filmmaker. Some of you may be familiar with his uh, important film, The Battle of Chile. Um, so this is, a this is a poem written after seeing that film, and it's called Only Swatch of Brown. Memory sinks its teeth into land so dry it cannot shelter animals, plants, or moisture from any source. Seen from space, the Atacama is the only swatch of brown on our blue and white sphere, spinning in eternity of space. Frigid nights, suffocating days, brilliant moons. Memory loses its haunted way, crystallized in salt nuggets and barren dreams. Earth is broken into a patchwork of hungry pieces spreading. Yet memory is alive in the fingers of a woman's dead hand, curled but reaching skyward through pale green rope of captivity, weave of a jacket still hugging her torso, dusted surface of rock and sand horizon to horizon. Memory sounds in the wind-scoured ruins of Chacabuco concentration camp, built over 19th century mining barracks where men were slaves. These prisoners were worse than slaves. Their families and this parched wood remember Memory walks with the aging mothers who roam this vast expanse, fewer each season, small orange beach shovels in hand. They move slowly, bend, retrieve the smallest shard, turn it in cracked hands, slip it into a shoulder bag, and keep on walking. They are looking for evidence, bone fragments among the salt crystals, pieces that will tell them a son or daughter's physical presence ended on this desolate terrain. Not dust to dust, but calcium to calcium, the stuff of stars, living connection. Thin Atacama air, Doors aston astronomers, too, with their giant telescopes 
visual, radio, new pathways retracing our enigmatic need to know where we began and how, where we are going and what of our future holds a mirror to our past. The cosmic archaeologists say it is calcium, material of stars and the human body that builds us what we search for across this desert whose secrets snake through crevices of hope. Dry earth and thin air release twin truths 14 billion years or four decades behind us along with all the stories in between, stories we resist until they part the earth and hit us where we feel the pain. When we ask these questions, their answers demand we follow their lead. When we usher memory into our poorest lives, we run the risk of acknowledging what it tells us of ourselves. And I'm going to end with uh, one poem, a very recent one called Fetal. One shrunken, curled, imploded into my disappearing core, fetal describes this place I inhabit and how. Pre-birth fetal was about available space. This is different. From the north, the cold so silent, sound is not yet born. From the south, waves of decay, steam rising beyond the body's trigger. Eastern solutions don't fit or smell right, don't satisfy a taste for blended spices, groundswell of calendar stones. West moves in too fast, presses me in its ever-tightening vice. One last hiss of breath from lungs flattened to a single point along horizon's gray-blue line. From above and below, pressure takes aim at my brain, hurdles it into a heart that once believed love conquers all. Two, coiled in defeated mass of dying cells, my 2012 instructions are, wait, Try to sleep, sleep and wait. Something is happening, nameless yet personal, downwind from every directive, shrill exhortation and gentle plea, off map from all those lines, gridded to show me the way. Three, one arm flies above my head, it extends in awkward angle as it wakes from death. A leg shoots out from my body, finds no resistance, and continues exploration. 
I hear my blood hosting memory again, warming muscle and skin, making promises. Faint Rorschach seeps through the delicate texture of a Mobius strip woven of perfect helix, double, triple, tethered to one elbow like a wing. The active leg throws itself from bed, seeks solid footing, hits the floor running. Arms extended now, fingers take up the charge, grab a pen, begin to write. Fetal, fetal again, but calling on one last surprise in this time of transient need. Thank you. Yeah, I may have neglected to mention that um, our first two speakers are going to be reading their poetry. Um, and you know, we wanted to consider poetry as a kind of borderland genre, too. That's part of our intention here. So our next speaker, Ruth Irobe Sanabria, was born into a political context that forced her to confront violent oppression from a very young age. In Argentina, during the Dirty War period of the 1970s, when Ruth was 18 months old, the military police disappeared her parents and imprisoned them for their political beliefs. Her mother, Alicia Partnoy, chronicled her time in The Little School, which is the name of her book and the name of the prison in which she was held and tortured. Ruth was lucky to have been left in the care of her maternal grandparents, and in late December 1979, she and her mother went into exile in the United States, followed soon after by her grandparents. Ruth grew up in Washington, D.C.'s Mount Pleasant Adams Morgan neighborhood, and many of her poems explore her experience as an immigrant inhabitant of the borderlands between many identities, Latin American but not Mexican, Jewish on her maternal family's side, first-generation American, profoundly mestiza in Anzaldúa's sense. Ruth's first book, The Strange House Testifies, published in 2010 by Bilingual Press, was the second-place winner in the 2010 Annual Latino Book Awards. In this book, she moves fluidly between past, present, and future, seeking a resolution for the violence that accompanied her early childhood. Like Anzaldúa, Ruth weaves issues of identity and social justice into her poetry, using the power of pen and voice to re-enter old wounds in order to heal them and to imagine new futures, to create what Anzaldúa called alter-narratives, alternative visions of the world that could be. So please welcome Ruth Sinatra. I'll begin with a poem called Refugees in an Attic on Kenyon Street. And uh, I, this is, Kenyon Street is in D.C. We are the resident ghosts atheists in the blue dollhouse. Our hosts are white and subversive and devoted to Jesus. I descend from their attic. I want their mints and their chocolate bunnies. God will punish me if I steal. How to not bend in confusion or in desperate gratitude. How to not be too quiet when seen. How to listen to their language, befriend their words. These things my mother shows me. To rebuild my body, I watch her rebuild her own. I spin alone in the quiet attic room. I spy on raccoons from the edges of the attic window. I float back across the sky. 
Yes, the walls warm. Yes, the floors hold. Their roof is stable, yes. Without scandalous sounds, they raise their wine glasses to us. They break bread with us. In gratitude, we hold our tongues. We drop our heads for grace. And um, I don't know how this fits into this, but I, from it, I guess when I was um, young, in Argentina, they have like the butcher shop. That's where you get your meat. I mean, now there might be supermarkets, but when I was there, you had to walk to a butcher shop, and it was just like a bloodbath in a butcher shop. Every All the meat is hanging, and, and I had a, at some point, something snapped at me, and I could not distinguish between, like, butcher shop blood and violence against people. So I, I and that was just something that happened to me. So starting around seven or eight, I did have this kind of interest in, in vegetarianism, which is hard for Argentinians because we just eat meat. So um, I don't want to give the wrong impression. It's just this is that I, like, I don't know. So this is called On the Skewer. And um, have you ever eaten meat? It's not what you think it is. So On the Skewer. I've eaten pork, from pernil to chuletas to chitlins. I've dipped my hands in oily paper bags of deep-fried gizzards and chicken hearts. I've swallowed raw clams and oysters. I've eaten a stack of jellyfish, cubes of crocodile. I've eaten pigeon and sparrow. I've eaten bad chicken. I've swallowed the shiny, salty, slimy, pink and pitch caviar out of tiny Russian tins. I've eaten goat bull balls and ox and catfish, swordfish, monkfish, and salmon. I've peeled prawns and slopped blood stew, and I have eaten red meat, shredded, cubed, ground, boiled, fried, broiled, tough, tender, young, and old, pounded, breaded, or wrapped in dough, in phyllo, in tortilla, or nestled in the mashed potato, platano, cornmeal, or corn husk. Tongue and marinade, brain, burger, patty, and barbecued intestines. I grew up with blood on my bread. El juguito, the cow's little juice reserved for the growing child. The scent of the steak on the skillet drew me to my mother when hungry. And the meat we just ate on that stick was neither cow nor pork nor chicken nor fish nor ox nor goat. The blood drains from us. And... um, I'm just, I, 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 I grappled with what I should be today. I, I, I um, have a poem called Las Ayos, de los Am Seeking Tongues, but it's such a performed piece, and I'm, I'm just, I, I don't know, I, I don't think I'm going to read it. So instead I will read um, excerpts from the poem, um, this large piece that I, that I worked with, um, found text from Nunca Mas. Um, when I was in college, I went to... I just, I was at Rutgers, but I, I would travel down to Princeton uh, just to hang out by myself in, in bookstores. And um, I found on the bottom shelf one day, like this Nunca Mas translated into English. And I, I flipped through it. I had never really read it because the one we had in our house was in Spanish, and I just don't do well with reading Spanish. And um, as I'm flipping through it, I open it to my mother's testimony. It's not like right there. It's just one of those strange moments where you're sitting and you're just opening it to the perfect page. So I started working with that text and writing my own poetry. So there's some, you'll, you'll hear citations. And, um, the purpose of the first torture session was to soften up newly arrived prisoners. And these were carried out by any number of personnel. 
Once it had been established that the prisoner had some information of interest to offer, sessions run by special interrogators began. In other words, there wasn't even a prior assessment made as to whether the person they were going to kidnap really knew anything of any interest to his captors. Page 60. I don't remember what actually triggered the insurgents of that day, what set in motion our little hurricane bodies. But I do know that together we lost our teeth and together we learned English from the TV in the house of the exiles, where my father, my stepfather-to-be, your mother's boyfriend, and a bunch of men we called tíos lived. And so basically, you and I were destined to be juntas. Still, who came up with the idea to lure Colin, our six-year-old neighbor, over to our side with unsweetened lemon water? What in our five-year-old bones said jump, then strip Collins of his Star Wars t-shirt? And where do we get the imagination to then take a steak knife to my father's bedroom in the basement and stab the feathers out of the pillows that he slept on and then douse the gutted dream down with warm orange juice? Who taught us to turn over his chairs? Who taught us to empty his drawers? I found the papers, my father's birth certificate, prison release forms, legal U.S. entry and parolee status papers, all of his money. And I cut them into the smallest pieces. Who instructed us to then run upstairs to the bathroom with Colin's Star Wars shirt still in one of our hands. I locked the paper and peed in the tub, but you stuffed his shirt in the toilet and shat. Then we were quiet, and only our eyes moved. When my father took me downstairs for my first and last spanking, you tried to defend me from him, but he cried more than me. Because of the indiscriminate methods, not only members of armed groups, but also their relatives, friends, colleagues at work or school, political party activists, priests, and laymen committed to the problems of the poor, student activists, trade unionists, neighborhood leaders, and in a remarkably high number of cases, people with no kind of trade union or political activity at all were rounded up and tortured. It was enough to appear in somebody's address book to instantly become a target for the notorious task forces. Page 16. Pops tells me in prison he was mandibula, the jaw, the only one able to eat rancid chorizo tucked in partially molded bread. And once he told me of a brother taking a noon dump in the latrine, Pops shouted, hey, brother, what's up? And brother deep in squat held back, thinking about the revolution in Mano. Perhaps Pops has to share this. We are silent about the day they came. We are silent about not having fled. We are silent about what happened to him inside the death camp. But absurdities are shareable. He will not share with me the bloody dress that I invent they, they dangled before him. This is your daughter. And still he refused to speak. But the reality was different. There were thousands of deaths. None of these came about through an ordinary or military trial. None was the result of a sentence. Technically speaking, they were murders. Murders into which no proper investigation was ever carried out and for which those responsible were never, as far as we know, punished in any way. To conclude, the regime which considered it necessary to change our legal tradition by introducing capital punishment never used it as such 
Instead, it organized a collective crime, a veritable mass extermination on which the evidence is now coming to light in the morbid form of hundreds of nameless corpses and the testimony of the survivors telling of those who died in agony. 209. One guard in grace specializes in contraband. She slides her chapped fat hands up my thighs and through while muttering about your doggishness. I know I am nothing more than child of a dog to her. Indescribable it is to be imprisoned, at least temporarily, with you. I decide to never understand the plexiglass or the infernal not knowing which in the row of the waiting women is you. Their eyes and yours love me equally. I sit on my grandmother's lap and bruise her. No three-year-old words exist for this fury. Here my legs go. The walls, the walls on my side and your side are the same. The infinite, indefinite color of filth. And you cannot smell this shit on my side, nor the urine I and the other children do on the floor, in the corners, or beside the chairs that we sit upon to look at you. We're all locked in like dogs. It is a smell of seeing you I cannot forget. And I don't remember one word or story you ever give me. I take you home in pockets no one can seize. I take you home with my eyes. And um, I, I think I'll finish with, with just a poem that... Um, it's called What? And I, I don't know. Okay. Um, you are right. I've never been lonely like you. Never been alone in a kitchen with seven brothers, three sisters, two mothers, a daughter, a husband, and his two friends, a pot of black beans, a pot of hominy, a pot of tamales, a hot comal, and 60 tortillas, two chairs, a big table, and a hologram of Jesus above the door, the one that if you look at him from one angle, he is an intact white man, but if you make a move, his mouth drops, eyes roll back, and blood gushes from his head. And the small plastic statue of the Virgen de Guadalupe plunged in and flashing on, off, on, off on the kitchen counter next to the food processor and the molcajete. And when you cry, everyone believes it's the onion. Thank you. Thank you, Ruth. Our final panelist has the distinction of being the youngest among us, at least us up here at the table, um, and thus the one whose, whose borderland location is most directly on the cutting edge of emer emerging conocimientos. Michelle Gonzalez is a senior at Bard College at Simons Rock in Great Barrington, Massachusetts, who will graduate in the spring with her BA in Gender Studies and Cross-Cultural Relations. She's currently writing her senior thesis on body politics, queer identity, and the right to appear in public spaces. She's also passionate about reproductive rights and other LGBTQ issues. Michelle is an active feminist blogger, the student leader of the Women's Center on our campus, and aspires to become a professional feminist. Please welcome Michelle Gonzalez. <laughs> in preparing for this conference, I spent a lot of time trying to write a paper, trying to take notes, trying to do something I wish I could come here and feel very prepared, you know, read to you guys, not be nervous, all of those things that sound really great. I sat in my room, I sat at my desk, I sat in the kitchen, and there was no paper happening. So instead, I felt it was a lot more natural and a lot better for this process of exploring these borderlands for me to just speak more openly. So in exploring these topics, I really just wanted to speak more openly um, because I feel it's a lot more natural and a lot 
less regulated in the sense that, you know, when Jenny and I were talking about this panel, the idea was moving these conversations into a less regulated space. So, you know, the dominant narratives are often, you know, dominated by the white, male, heterosexual, cisgendered, able-bodied, et cetera, discourse on what things are and what things should be. And in order to break free of those narratives, we look for less regulated spaces. So as Margaret and Ruth showed us earlier, you can use poetry to find your voice and share that with new people. And as a blogger, I utilize the internet as a less regulated space in which I can share my opinions to a wider audience and communicate those experiences in a less regulated space. And what space could be less regulated than me just talking to you guys right now? <laughs> just my mouth. <laughs> so after reading Gloria Anseldua's Borderlands, I was left reflecting on what those borderlands looked like and how I could relate to them on a more personal level. And the borderlands that I'm going to be talking about are, as Margaret mentioned, more fluid and more personal, not so much related to physical space or territories. In this, I'm talking about what I'm calling a border identity in the, se in the sense of not being either here or there, either in one box or another. Oftentimes, you know, you take a test or you're filling out an application and you're asked to check one box. Well, that would be really great if you knew which box you were supposed to check, you know, homosexual or heterosexual or bisexual or, well, what if you're none of the above, you know, what, white or Latina? Okay, that would be really fantastic if I knew which of those boxes I felt like I could be identifying with. Um, so what I feel like, I feel like I have, and many others, of course, have been situated within this third space of identity in which you're constantly being overwhelmed by socially constructed narratives and definitions of what race is and what sexual orientation is and what you should be identifying as a person. I find this conversation to be very difficult to have. I went to one of my professors two or three weeks ago and casually mentioned that I would be presenting here and what I was talking about. And he told me, well, that's really brave. People are afraid to talk about race from your perspective and people are afraid to talk about sexual orientation. And I told him that if I didn't have this conversation and if people didn't start having this conversation, we wouldn't be making any progress. So here I am. What I find to me the most difficult part of this process of identification on a personal level is my ability to be perceived as one thing when I walk down the street and the conflict that that presents for me internally. Walking down the street, I'd say the majority of people look at me and think I am a white, straight, young woman, which is not right. Um, I'm, you know, I'm 19, I'm able-bodied, I'm cisgendered, I'm educated. I'll be the first one in my family to graduate from college, hopefully. Um, <laughs> I'm a second-generation Cuban-American. I have very light skin. Maybe you would call it white. Depends on what your feelings are on the word white and its origins. I'm queer. And all of those things combine and put me in a place where one box just isn't going to cut it. I can't, you know, take a test and identify with one box because there is no one box to sum up all of me or all of you or all of anyone else. We are more than one box. We are more than one option. And one word just is not going to define us. My freshman year of college, my school hosts something called Diversity Day, where we're required to attend these events that teach us about race and class and sexual orientation and hopefully make you feel slightly uncomfortable. Well, they totally succeeded because I was very uncomfortable. I went to a discussion on race and they asked us to separate ourselves into three groups. And everyone in the room would go to their, you know, their little corner. White people to this corner, 
biracial people to this corner and people of color to this corner. Oh my goodness. I was internally freaking out. I had never really had to, I, I mean, other than like, you know, the standardized tests and things, but I always had to find myself in more than one word. And in that setting, I was forced to pick one. I was definitely not comfortable enough about myself to raise my hand and say that one, one word just wasn't going to cut it. So I casually walked over to one corner, to the people of color corner, because I couldn't identify with the white people in the room, and I couldn't really identify with the two other people of color that were sitting next to me. Um, I will never forget that moment, and I think it's definitely played a crucial role for me in defining how I identify. I probably cried that night, and definitely remember having many conversations about it thereafter, because I felt very in between. I felt like I was in this third space that really didn't exist for me in that room and oftentimes doesn't exist for you in, you know, like real life or, you know, whatever you want to call it. I also feel like my fear of having this conversation and my inability to kind of describe this process results from a combination of fear of offending other people because that's definitely not something I want to do, but also the fact that I don't want to deny the privileges that I do have. I know that when I walk down the street and, I'm as, and am perceived as a white woman, there are countless privileges that come with that, and there are countless other privileges that come with being perceived as heterosexual. Um, but at the same time, I feel like it's important to figure out those things for yourself in order to belong to a community. I've been told that I'm not Cuban enough, I'm not Latina enough. You know, I went to a high school my sophomore year, and no one wanted to be my friend at this predominantly Cuban school because I wasn't Cuban enough, whatever that means. And at the same time, the white kids didn't want to be my friend because I wasn't white enough. Awesome. Um, so I feel like this internal struggle that I'm having is not strictly individual and it's very collective. And I think there's a big need to bridge these gaps and have this dialogue. And Ansel Duas says, um, what we are suffering from is an absolute duality that says we are able to be only one or the other. It claims that nature is limited and cannot evolve into something better. And I agree with her, and I think that we really need to challenge this idea that we are strictly limited in who we are and who we can be. Um, as Audre Lorde says, we can't use the master's tools to dismantle the master's house, and we can't just check one box and think that's going to solve all the problems that we have. We have to, you know challenge those things and if it means you have to write next to that little box you know whatever else you want or however you feel that you need to challenge that I feel like that's really important and I think for me it's something that has been very hard to come to in terms of what that means for me and how to exactly go about doing that because there is still a whole lot of discomfort and concern about having those conversations um, ultimately what I see as the most important is I see this kind of dialogue at a crossroads. Um, and so Dua says, and there in front of us is the crossroads in choice, to feel a victim where someone else is in control and therefore responsible and to blame, or to feel strong for the most part and in control. I think it's very important to start having these conversations and shifting our paradigm in order for us to be in control and to have these discussions and to challenge the dominant narrative which encourages us to categorize ourselves into one box. I see this monolithic categorization as a tool to oppress people, to restrict identity, to limit expression, and to prevent communities from coming together and challenging the, high, the power structures and the hierarchies that maintain 
people, make people submissive, make people oppressed, marginalize people into having experiences that are shaped by these power structures. So ultimately, what I think is the most important is having this paradigm shift and starting these conversations. So that's what I was hoping to do when I started writing. I guess I just wrote some notes. I didn't write a paper, but started having this conversation. And I'm um, having these conversations more and more frequently. So thank you all so much for coming. Thank you, Jenny, for the introduction. And thank you, Margaret and Ruth, for sharing your work with us. Mm -hmm.